chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. We continue our study here in this wonderful epistle to the Hebrews. Recently on uh, one of the social media sites um, that I subscribe to, I got an invitation to connect with a man who wrote that book, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. You guys remember that book, 90 Minutes in Heaven? I actually believe there was a movie that came from this man's claim that he died and spent 90 minutes in heaven before being resuscitated, uh, and thus the title, 90 Minutes in Heaven. The idea of knowing what lies beyond death has fascinated man from the very beginning of creation, and, had, and it has expanded, I would say, exponentially with the invention of the Internet. I'll just give you a couple. One quick Google search here. You can find... 16,000 sites about witchcraft to try and find the answer to what happens after death. You can find 13,000 sites about reincarnation. You can find 12,000 sites about psychics, 10,000 sites about sorcery, 5,000 about clairvoyance, and over 1,000 sites about necromancy. But this is what lies, but what is it that I should say that lies beyond death that fascinates us so deeply. Is it simply the finality of it all? Is that what really catches everyone's attention? It is true through the advances in medicine today that we are living longer, but even still, the death rate remains unchanged. We still have one death for every birth. And we might be able to postpone or perhaps delay, at least in our minds, a little longer uh, these days. But we cannot eliminate that fact, can we? The old adage that nothing is certain in life but death and taxes is only partially correct. You might be able to creatively figure out how to avoid paying all or maybe nearly all of your taxes, but you cannot eliminate death. Someday you and I are going to die And that death, whether planned or accidental, whether comfortable or painful, will be the end of life in this physical body as we know it. And each of us has an appointment with death. And that's just a simple fact of life. But where do we turn to find the answers that intrigue us so intensely about what happens to us after death? Well, there are really only two sources We either turn to other human subjective experiences, such as the man who wrote the 90 Minutes in Heaven book, or we turn to the Bible. If we turn to human experiences, we find many guesses, we find many speculative ideas, we find lots of theories. We don't really find any true answers, and that's because in the nature of the case, no human has a sure answer. Why not? Well, because the only people who really have the truth about what it's like after you die are dead. Just uh, as simple as that is. So that really leaves us with the Word of God as the only definitive truth about what happens to us after we die. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about death and what happens after you die. If you want the answer in one sentence, what happens after you die, depends on what you do before you die. 
But consider what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Those two appointments are two appointments that no one here will miss. Which reminds me of a quick story I just wanted to share with you real quick before we get started. Perhaps you've heard the story of Bill and George, both of whom were avid baseball players. One day, Bill and George wondered if they played baseball in heaven. So they argued, and they decided that whoever, uh, whoever died first would find out the answer and then come back and communicate to the one who was still living. Eventually, Bill died. Several weeks later, George was awakened with a vision of his friend Bill, and he was delighted to see him and said, well, Bill, do they play baseball in heaven? And Bill said, well, George, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is they do indeed play baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're scheduled to pitch next week. (laughs) We all laugh when we read about the friendly undertaker who writes in his correspondence, eventually yours. He's, He's right, of course. Death is coming. Eventually, for all of us, sooner than we think for some of us. Well, let's recap, shall we? I want to have a word of prayer, and I want to recap what we covered last time, uh, because it all ties together with these last two verses. They're kind of wrapping up and putting a bow, if you will, on this entire chapter. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll review what we covered uh, last week, and then tie that into today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth. I pray, Lord, that I would cut it straight. Pray, Lord, that I would not be a distraction to your truth. And Lord, I pray that we would have open open ears and open minds and open hearts to your wonderful truth, that we would receive it in a spirit, Lord, in which it was attended. And that is, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That we would not hear today's message and then say, well, that's really good for the person next to me really needs to hear that. But rather, first we would say, Lord, what would you have me do with this? How should I apply this to my life in a way that brings you honor and glory? That's our heart's desire, Lord, today. And so it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. uh, You're in Hebrews chapter 9 by now, I'm assuming. Remember last week in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, Our first point there was there was a necessity for a better sacrifice in the heavenlies. Remember, we spent all of verses 15 through 22 talking about the limitations of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, if you will, right? The two different sanctuaries, what they meant, what all the furnishings meant in there. All of that was pointing towards Christ. And so we spent all of that time in uh, verses 15 to 22 explaining that. Verse 23 says, there was a need for a better sacrifice because Christ is not in a temple or a sanctuary built with human hands. He's in the sanctuary. He is in the tabernacle, if you will. He is in the presence of God the Father as well. So he's, there was a necessity for a better sacrifice than what they could provide in the old one, which was the blood of bulls and goats. If it was necessary for all the things that were used in the worship and service of God to be cleansed with the sprinkling of blood... How much more is it necessary for you and I? We are now the ones seated in the heavenlies. Remember, we looked at Ephesians 2, 22. We're the ones who need to be cleansed as positionally we're already in the sanctuary. Point number two, Jesus' sacrifice was only necessary once. And we saw that in verses 25 to 26a. And the key word is in verse 25, that word often. 
the high priest in the Old Covenant, was ineffective, remember, for two different reasons. One, he had to enter every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? Yom Day Kippur Atonement, Day of Atonement. And he would have to, have to offer a sacrifice for himself first, right? And then he could go in and get another and take a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of God's people. Uh, so he had to do that every year, again and again and again. Every year, the Jewish people would see the high priest go in there. Every year, they would pray that he would come out. Why would they pray that he would come out? Because if he didn't come out, God did not accept their sac- his sacrifice on behalf of the people, which means they're still under the guilt of their sin. And those sins were still unforgiven. And they knew having sins that were unforgiven denied them access to God. You needed to have your sin atoned for to have access to God. Secondly, never once did any high priest think about offering his own shed blood. It was always the blood of bulls and goats. And so, But Jesus' sacrifice was only one time. He did not bring in the blood of an animal. He brought in his own blood. And that one-time sacrifice of the shed blood of Jesus Christ finishes everything forever. Remember, on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. So Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and thus needed no repeating. Otherwise, we see in verse 26, otherwise he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. And I asked you last week, how many times do you think Jesus would have had to come to earth, putting on flesh, live a sinless life, then die on the cross if he needed to die for every single time we sinned? Not just you, not just me, but all. And I told you again last week, he never would have gotten off of that cross. Point number three, verse 26, Jesus' sacrifice put away our sin forever. See that phrase in there? Once at the consummation of the ages. What does that mean? That means in God's perfect time. Or as Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, in God's perfect time, that time preordained before time began, in that moment, God would intersect time and space and put on human flesh and come as a man to bear the sins of many, to give his life as a ransom for all, to seek and save the lost. Notice the next phrase, he has been manifested. What was Christ manifest? That's talking about his incarnation. For what purpose was he manifested? It says in our text, to put away sin. That word means to annul or to cancel out. To annul or cancel out our sin. Specifically, the debt of our sin. The payment of our sin. How did he do that? The text tells us. By the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ came to offer himself in order to make it possible for our sin case to be done away with once and forever so that we could have access to God in heaven, so that we could have eternal redemption, claim our eternal inheritance, which is eternal salvation. That brings us to our point today in Hebrews 9, 27. Let's look at that again. And inasmuch... As it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Point number one, the sacrifice of Christ 
settles the payment for death. The sacrifice of Christ settles the payment for death. I told you in the introduction this morning that we all have two appointments that we will never miss. And verse 27 tells us what those two appointments are, my friends. Death and judgment. Death and judgment. None of us can ever be late for those appointments. We cannot reschedule them to a later date. We cannot simply decide we'll not show up for them. In a very real sense, they are unchangeable appointments. None of us really know how, when we will die. But eventually, unless the rapture comes first, you and I will die physically and then judgment. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, who it is that's appointed to die once. All men, or literally all mankind. This really shoots a hole in the bucket of those who believe in reincarnation, doesn't it? There's no redos in life. There is death and judgment. And it's appointed for all of us to die once. People like to believe if we deny Christ in this life, and then we die in our sins, and we get another chance if we just hang on long enough, if we just sit in a holding tank called purgatory, that eventually we all get in. My friends, that's unbiblical. There's no sound scriptural support for that view. None. Other false teachers, like Rob Bell, believe you can deny Christ in this life, and then because God is love, it's ali ali income free, as we used to say when we were kids. Everybody's in. That's called universalism. That is unscriptural. That is unbiblical as well. There is no sound scriptural reference to support that view either. None. Here's what the scriptures do teach. And they do so right in this verse. It is appointed for all men to die once and then comes judgment. My friend, I told you the death rate is still 100%. And that includes you and me. Are there any exceptions? Well, there was Elisha, Enoch. The Lord took them without dying a physical death. There was also Lazarus, who died not just once, but twice. And there's a handful of people the Lord brought back to life for the purposes of attesting to his claim to be the Son of God, who did indeed die twice. And, of course, there's always the rapture, which is imminent, which means it could happen at any time. But the mere fact that the exceptions in all of Scripture are so exceedingly rare, it would behoove all of us to prepare for our unchangeable appointments as well of death and judgment. Notice that all men die one time. It's an, it's an appointed time, which means that just as all the, the psalmist says, all the days of your life right, have been appointed to you, that includes your birth and your death and the days in between. The reason every person dies is that every person is a sinner. And the wages of sinner are death. The wages of sin, I should say. And Christ also died once, and it also was an appointed time. But he did not die because he was a sinner. He died to bear the sins of many. His death was not a penalty for sin like you and me, but a sacrifice for our sins. 
You and I have a death coming that was appointed by God and is not voluntary. His death was completely voluntary. And if the Lord tarries, we will all die. We all receive the death penalty because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Lord. And there is not one thing you and I can do to get out of that penalty. But that was not the case with Jesus. His death was not due to his sin, and his death was voluntary. He died one time for the sins of all men. As our appointed Savior, if he was to secure eternal life for us, if he was to secure our salvation, then what awaited him is the same thing that awaits you and me, death and judgment. So it was appointed for him to die. He died the sacrifice of his death as our representative, as our mediator, the one who stands between God and man and brings reconciliation. His death settles the payment for death. Whose death? Your death. Your death, my friends. My death. Your death. The death of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. What payment was due for your sin? Death. His death, his sacrificial death, was the penalty for your sin. Death is not some natural process as we like to describe it today. It is part of God's divine judgment on sin. And it happened from Genesis 3 on. Point number two, the sacrifice of Christ settles the payment for judgment. Not only settles the payment for death, it settles the payment for judgment. Then after death comes judgment. That's probably the one thing that scares us even more than dying, isn't it? It's the judgment that awaits us all. Most people, when facing the subject of death, totally neglect this part of it. Ever hear people say that? May he rest in peace. Well, he may or may not, because when he dies, there's the judgment of God. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a second, Pastor, I know. I thought I wouldn't face judgment as a believer. Keep your place in Hebrews 9 and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. First of all, who is speaking here? The Apostle Paul. Who is he speaking to? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. That's right. So according to this text, and we're going to read this here, who is it that will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must all appear. There is an unchanging appointment before the Lord for believers as well. And just because our sins are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ does not mean that we do not have to give an account of our lives. You and I as believers will stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account of how we have spent our time 
and how we have spent our talents and how we have spent our gifts and how we have spent our treasures. Every single one of us. No one is exempt from that. Make no mistake about it. You'll be, your life will be reviewed. Did you use your time for the glory of the Lord in obedience to his commands? Or did you selfishly choose yourself and your desires time and time and time again? Did you use your God-given talents and gifts to build up the body of Christ, which is why you have them in the first place? Or did you choose instead to use them to build yourself up? Or worse yet, selfishly hoard them for yourself? Did you use God's given treasures of time and resources for his glory, for his church, for his body? Or did you selfishly choose your desires and your interest instead? What awaits you, believer, after death is judgment. Not a judgment for salvation. That price was paid for you at the cross. No, what awaits you is an accounting, an inventory of your responsibilities as a believer, a recompense for your obedience to his commands. The result will either be rewards or loss of rewards. Or those words every true believer yearns to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now there are two ways to appear before God. You can appear before him on the basis of your sins being forgiven through Christ, or you can appear before him on the basis of your own righteousness, your own merit, your own good works. For unbelievers, there's a judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ as well, and it's called the great white throne judgment. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Let's take a peek at that one. Beginning in verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whom, for whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment against unbelievers is by far the stricter judgment. Because it is here that every word, every thought, every deed, the unbeliever will have to give an account. When you were 13 and you had those illicit thoughts about the opposite sex, you're going to need to give an account. When you were 16 and you decided to test the limits of how far you could go in your relationship, you're going to need to give an account. Every movie you watched and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, every lie you ever told, every word you ever spoken poorly against someone else, every jealous thought you had, every instance of gossip, you will give an account. There is no sin that God Almighty just looks at and winks at. You will give an account 
If you're an unbeliever, you will stand before God Almighty and give an account for every single sin against him. When you were in college and you thought no one would ever find out, yep, you're going to need to give an account. Every time you cheated on a test, every time you cheated on your taxes, every sin of omission, every sin of commission, you will give an account on the day of judgment. Things you've long forgotten about, God has not. And you will have to give an account for every single one of them. What makes the difference in how we die is how we are related to Jesus Christ. All of Scripture speaks of the coming judgment for everyone. Here's a couple you can jot down in your notes. Ecclesiastes 3.17. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and for every deed is there. Paul said in Romans uh, 14, 12, So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. The judgment of God after death is a scary proposition, my friends, without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. All of us have two unchangeable appointments with God. The first is death. The second is judgment. You know, we're always so careful to keep all of our business appointments, aren't we? All of our social appointments. And yet we often ignore these two appointments. You may not have those two unchangeable appointments on your calendar, but trust me when I tell you they're on God's. And the day of your appointment has already been appointed, and so has your judge. And it's already been appointed for all men to die once, and then comes judgment. What makes the difference is who's going to represent you and on what payment is due. For the believer, Christ is our representative. He's already settled the payment for death and for judgment. Amen? But unlike the believer, whose payment for judgment has, uh, has been paid already, you, as an unbeliever, will represent yourself on your own merits, and you will face the penalty for your own sins. And quite honestly, on that basis alone, if you're being honest with yourself, it should not send you just running, dare I say, you should be sprinting as fast as you can to the cross of Christ. I know that fact did it for me. And I rested in these two life-changing truths, that the sacrifice of Christ settles the payment for death, and the sacrifice of Christ settles the payment for judgment. Point number three, verse 28. Let's go look at that back in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Point number three, there is great hope for those who eagerly await his appearing. There's great hope. If you're here today and you can't wait for the Lord's return, you have a hope not many have. You have a hope that's rested in who Christ is and what he's done for you. That's a glorious hope. Notice the first words in verse 28. 
so Christ also. So Christ also. If it was appointed for all men to die once, so Christ also. If it was appointed for all men to die once and then comes the judgment, so Christ also. It was through his death that he suffered the judgment of your sin. My friends, he was not just your sin bearer, he was your wrath bearer as well. And as he became your representative for sin, he also incurred the wrath that God has for you because of your sin. Keep your place here. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This verse is probably very familiar to all of you. Hopefully, most of you, if not all of you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. Why? So that, here's the reason why, we might become the righteousness righteousness of God. How? In him. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to jump around a little in this, but I just want you to listen to these verses. Here's verses 4 through 7a. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of, for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Move to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. As he hung on that cross, my friend, every bit of God's wrath was placed on him. That was stored up for you in eternity, in hell, was placed on him instead. For three hours... 
He felt every bit of that wrath for your sins, not for his. Do you want to know why there's therefore no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus? Because every bit of that condemnation was hurled upon the Lord Jesus on that cross. And why? That's why. Turn to Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. Verse 40. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began praying, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. The cup that Jesus drank was the cup of the bitter wrath that the prophets spoke about long ago. So that you would never have to drink that bitter cup of wrath, my friends, Jesus took the cup and drank it willingly for you. And God is righteous and just, so there is no second judgment for your sin. And since Christ has endured the cross, despising the shame, drank the vile, bitter cup of God's wrath for you, believer, there is therefore no condemnation in you who are in Christ Jesus. He took it all. All of it. Verse 28b, back in our text in Hebrews 9. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of the many. Who are the many? Those who believe. Those who don't believe are still under God's wrath. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're still under God's wrath. And they will be under God's wrath unless they fall on their knees and cry out to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Repent of their sins. That word to bear in our text means to carry. That's what we looked at earlier in Isaiah 53, isn't it? He will bear the sins of many. He will carry the sins of many. Jesus carried the weight of our sins by himself. I want to remind you, even the Father turned his back on him when he carried the weight of our sins. Do you remember what Jesus cried out while he was on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Enduring the physical pain is one thing, but being separated from the Father for the first time in eternity was almost too much for him to bear. 
He bore the full weight of the sins of many, our text tells us. But that's not the end of the story, my friends. The text tells us he will appear again a second time without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The next time Christ appears, it will not be for the purpose of sin. Why not? Because he's already dealt with that issue. He's already settled the payment for sin, for death, and for judgment. That word appear comes from a Greek word that means to behold or to see. It's interesting in this verse that it does not say at his second coming. It says at his second appearance. What is actually stated here is that when believers see Jesus Christ the next time, your salvation will be final. What does that mean? It will be complete. You have went from a new believer as a new creature in Christ. You have gone through the process of sanctification. What's left? Glorification in the presence of God. One way or another, my friends, your salvation will be complete when you're face to face with Jesus. One way or another. The next time he appears, he will appear without reference to sin, for the matter of salvation is done. What is he talking about? He's talking about the rapture of the church. And we learn some key doctrines here, and that is only believers will see Jesus Christ at the rapture. Those who eagerly await refers to God's people in the church age longing for God to finish his program and rapture us. In view of the fact that we will be judged, it's critical that we know when we die and when we face judgment that all of our sins are forgiven. Because the only possible way for this to happen is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way we may appropriate this to our sin case is by faith, not by works. My friends, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you believe in Jesus, you will never die. What an amazing promise that is. But believers die every day. Wait a second here. Yes, but for the believer, death is merely the passing from this life with all of its sorrows into a life eternal into the presence of the Lord. The question is not what happens when we die. The question is what happens when you die. That's really the question that needs to be settled. Death is not the end of the road. It's only a bend in the road. For the believer, death is that doorway into heaven, into the presence of God. For the unbeliever, it's a passageway into an unimaginable suffering that never ends. These things are true even if we don't fully understand them. These things are true even if you don't believe them. What happens when you die depends on what happens before you die. So that's my closing word for you, my friends. Make sure you're ready to die. Make sure you're ready for your appointments. Because they're unchangeable. You will have those two appointments. Make sure you're not surprised at what happens next. If you're clinging to this world, my friends, you got to let that go. You can't cling to the world and embrace Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. You can't cling to the world with one hand and embrace him in the other. You must be of those who are eagerly awaiting his arrival. And I can tell you, you are not eagerly awaiting his arrival if you have to face the coming judgment for your own sins. 
Today, salvation is offered to you freely. Unless you come to the cross and you're washed with the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, there is no forgiveness for your sin. And without the forgiveness of sin, there is no salvation. There is only death and then judgment. Salvation has been offered to you today, but you must receive it and believe it in your heart. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from your belief in his <coughs> death, burial, and resurrection as the only means of salvation for your sin. God is holding you responsible for what you've heard today, my friends. And when you die, you will stand before him and you'll need to give an account for this day. Did you receive it today in the glorious hope, eagerly awaiting for his arrival? Or are you sitting there thinking, I got to fix this? I got to fix this. Because I don't want to stand before God Almighty and try and justify myself. I pray that you will respond to the work that Christ is doing in your heart, that you will trust that He settled the payment for your death with His death. Now trust that you that you will that you will trust that He has settled the payment for your judgment, that He bore the payment for your sins on that cross, and that you have a great hope and eagerly awaiting His appearing because you know Him as your Savior. My friends, His arms are open to you right now. Run to Him. Repent of your sins. Believe in your heart that he is God. Trust in his atoning work on the cross for your sins. And then come to him and be saved. If you're not absolutely positively sure, you're a child of the king. I pray right now, even where you're seated, you would bow your head. You would repent of your sins. You would recognize you're a sinner in need of a savior. You would trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and that you too would be counted among those who are eagerly awaiting his arrival. That's my heart, my friends. I, I beg you, I plead you, do not presume upon God's grace another day. Not one more day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the message of your text here today, Lord, it's hard for us to hear those things. It's hard for us in one respect, Lord, because many times we try to come to you in a, our own means of salvation. We try to justify our own payment for sin, try to justify our own payment for death. We think somehow we'll be excluded from that or we'll be able to talk our way out of it or we'll be able to slide the sliding scale in our favor or we'll look at other people and say, well, they're worse off than I am, so I should be in and they're out. But Lord, that's called self-righteousness and that is abhorrent to you. It is repugnant to you that we as created beings would determine our own sense of righteousness apart from you. And so, Lord, I pray if we have one in our midst here today, perhaps one, Lord, like me 20 years ago, sitting in this congregation, justifying myself, trying to think I was going to get to heaven by thinking my way there. Oh, Lord, I pray they would respond to the work you're doing in their heart right now 
I pray, Lord, they would seek me or one of the elders after the service, later in the week, that's any time, Lord, that they would come and ask questions, be absolutely positively sure they're a child of the King. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, work in their heart. Glorify yourself through their salvation. Father, for those who are already your children, I pray we would live each day where we eagerly await your appearing. That we're not sitting there thinking as I went through that checklist, Lord, about how we spent our time and our talents and our treasure and thinking, that's me. But rather, that we live each day seeking, awaiting, eagerly, your arrival. And we spend each day seeking to glorify you. That's our heart's desire, Lord. Hear our prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.